Anybody ride motorcycle this morning? Did you really? Was that you I passed? I, I wondered about that. I'm like, who is that idiot passing me on a motorcycle? And I thought, that really, I think that looked like Kurt's motorcycle. Burr. It's like 26 degrees outside. When I rode motorcycle, it was like 70 degrees was my base. That was where I, I stopped. I was a real cold weather rider. Well, the rest of us this morning, when we got up, went out in our driveways or out in our cars and uh, in our garages, and we started up our cars and we backed out of the driveway, drove down the street, and we passed neighbors here and here and over here and over here. And some of them were getting up and getting ready for church and off they're going to go to their worship service. And some of them were staying in bed and getting a good night's sleep and maybe having a late brunch this morning. Could you tell me the first and last names of the four neighbors that live closest to you? Are their names and their contact information in your contact list? Could you tell me what kind of work they do and how many children they have? Could you tell me when they moved there and why they chose that house or apartment? Could you tell me what they're afraid of and what they're proud of? Could you tell me the foods they like to eat and the ones they won't touch? You may not know who they voted for, but you, could you tell me something about their political leanings or what faith they have or don't have? Now, if you can't, you are in the majority. They say that one-third of us Americans have never met a single one of our neighbors. One-third. That's 110 million people. That one-half of us don't know the first and last names of even one of our neighbors. Uh, thanks to sophisticated data mining that examines our online shopping habits and our social media use, multinational corporations know more about us than our neighbors do and know more about our neighbors than we do. Turn with me to Luke chapter 14 this morning. I'm going to look at the first 14 verses, and we're going to talk about hospitality. Luke chapter 14, Jesus is, went to a, someone's home for a meal. And have you ever thought about, as you look through the, uh, the gospel accounts in Jesus' life and ministry, how often things take place in a home, around a table, around a meal? And this is one more of them. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of activity. There's a lot of movement. A lot of things that are taking place. And a lot of things that Jesus is saying in the context of a meal at a home. 
There are people there that are spying on him that don't like how he does things and uh, are looking to trap him. There are uh, words of wisdom that he gives about what you should do as a guest and also words of wisdom about what you should do as a host. Luke 14, 1, one Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner in the home of a leader of the Pharisees, and the people were watching him closely. There was a man there whose arms and legs were swollen. Now, if you have an older translation, it says dropsy, I believe. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in religious law, is it permitted in the law to heal people on the Sabbath day or not? He asked the question because he knew what was going through their mind, what they were thinking about. When they refused to answer, Jesus touched the sick man and healed him and sent him away. And then he turned to them and said, again, he knows they're critical of what he just did. Which of you doesn't work on the Sabbath? I mean, if your son or your cow falls into a pit, don't you rush to get him out? In other words, Jesus is questioning, who do you love? And who don't you love? Again, they could not answer. When Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you are invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat. (laughs) Then you'll be embarrassed you're going to have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table, and then when your host sees you, he will come and say, Hey, friend, we have a better place for you. And then you will be honored in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And then he turned to his host. When you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, Don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. We'll stop there. Would you pray with me? Father God, maker of heaven and earth, the one who spawned the universe, who fashioned flesh out of dirt in the ground, who flung the stars and the planets into space, who sustains them with your mighty word, who has populated a planet with things like zebras and trout, chimpanzees and spiders and crocodiles and hawks and sinners made in your image. We worship you and praise you for who you are, for what you do, for the glory of your majesty And the way you have stooped down to love the likes of us. That you have called people who were once strangers into your family. That you have called people who were once rebels 
and made them allies. I pray that you would speak to us this morning by your spirit and your word and silence the enemy and that our resistance and our obstacles and our um, love of self might be broken down just a bit more this morning and more widely open to your spirit's direction and leading not just of our Sundays, but of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about hospitality, I tend to think about um, food, table, home. I tend to think about fine china and fine food and fine friends and a fine time with those fine friends. Jesus is going to talk to us about some different things in this text. One of the things that he is uh, critical of is how easy it is for us to become preoccupied with ourselves when it comes to entertainment. He doesn't really speak to the host specifically here, uh, except later in the, uh, towards the end of the text, but in the front end, he is, he's critical about how guests function in a hospitality uh, setting. But the same kind of problem, the me preoccupation, can be, when, uh, be true of a host or hostess as well. I, I remember when, I'm, uh, when I was younger and I was a um, cabinet maker and I would build furniture. And I remember I'd bring a piece home from the shop and... And uh, we would be having guests uh, in the near future. And I'd, I'd kind of think through my mind, oh, they're going to see this new piece of furniture I, I built and kind of feel really good about that. And, of course, I wouldn't bring it up, but I'd hope they would bring it up or maybe Betty would bring it up, you know, and kind of go like, like this. And um, I wish I could say all of that's behind me. It's more of it's behind me, but it's still there's when people come, you think about how the house looks and um, you think about perhaps a new piece of furniture and how the backyard looks. You want to make sure it's groomed well. Any of you do this? No? Oh, praise God. Um, but in a, in a setting like that where we get with other people, the potential to you know, want to f- feed me and, and have people think well of me is, can be the, present. And Jesus says the same problem is present when it comes to the guests. And Jesus saw these people at this, uh, at this meal who were, you know, kind of trying to find the best spots, the best seats in the house. They want to get close to the head table. Uh, they want to be seen a- as important. And Jesus warns them, if you do that, if that's your end game, it might backfire on you. You try to get up here and, and uh, just like everybody does here on a Sunday morning, Try to sit in the front. And, and then maybe that chair was reserved for somebody more important than you, some dignitary, and, the, and uh, they come and they move you. And now you could have gone like to the middle, middle seats when you first came, and now you wouldn't be uh, removed to the back row because all the middle seats are gone. And Jesus said it could backfire on you. When we get together with other people, it, 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 it's almost, well, it's the flesh. It's compelling to us to, 
to want to talk about how important we are and the things that we've accomplished. And so maybe we talk about our high-paying job or the exotic places that we've traveled to. If you're a high schooler, you might talk about the, the girlfriend you have. She's the most popular girl on campus, and you, you like to be known as her escort because that makes you become more prominent as well. And Talk about what we've done and what we've accomplished and maybe just exaggerate a little bit. So it's the Bible tells us that kind of desire to self-promote is just at the heart of worldliness. Apostle John says this in First John chapter two, verse fifteen, do not love this world nor the things it offers you for when you love the world you do not have the love of the father in you now it's tempting to read when we read this to think about um, the material things of the world don't love the material things of the world and wealth and so forth but he's he's talking about more than that it's it's the accolades that the world gives it's the admiration the world gives it's the um, status that's given or that's offered by the world for the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. Hospitality can so easily just be rooted in what can I get out of it, whether I'm the guest or the host. What can I get out of it? And yet this is, the, this is the context in which we live and move and have our being really 24-7, 168 hours a, a week. Is that the best that God has for us? I want to talk this morning about something I'm, I'm labeling gospel-tality. It's different than hospitality where it can so easily be all about me. Gospel-tality. A gospel-tality that is... Not for me, but for them, for somebody else. Jesus said here in verse 11 that those who humble themselves will be exalted and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. It's kind of a proverb. This is typically how things are going to go. If you try to push yourself up, at some point you're going to crash and burn. But if you take the low spot, you will be exalted. We talk about this in, in marriage Humility, that if we take the, the low spot, good things can happen in your marriage because typically our, our marital problems are rooted in me first, me first, me first. Jesus said, if you're going to be me first, you're sooner or later going to be me last. If, on the other hand, if you're me last first, you come, God pushes you up. And in some ways, Jesus is kind of just appealing to our root base nature there to say, look, if you want to have things go well for you, this is, this is the root. Because the root that you think is going to make things go well for you really, really doesn't. So we, I'm using this, I made up this term, uh, gospel-tality. But it is, it is an understanding of what Christ has done in my life, has, has wrought something different in me that I now want to pass along to other people. When the Bible talks about um, biblical hospitality, one of the Greek words that's used is uh, philoxenia. And it's often used to speak about 
showing this kind of favor that we've received from God to other people who are specifically strangers. Hebrews 13, 2 talks about showing hospitality to the stranger. And that's really what I want to concentrate on this morning. I'm going to define hospitality this way. We who were once strangers to Christ, in turn loving other strangers by his grace. We who were once strangers to Christ, loving other strangers by his grace. In other words, we're rooted in the grace that's been given to us, and now we pass that along to other people. And I want you to think about it this morning as a river rather than a hot tub. Now, you can kind of think through what the difference might be. You know, if, we, if, if you have a hot tub here in your back, um, on your back patio or something, you, you go out there um, on a cold evening and you warm up, the, you have the temp warmed up and you start the bubbles and you get in and uh, you might call your spouse, hey, let's enjoy the hot tub tonight. Um, we've rented a, a cabin down in West Virginia a couple of times for some anniversary celebrations and um, it has a hot tub out in the back, uh, in the back porch. And our anniversary is late November, so it's always cold in the mountains of West Virginia and, and not unusual to have it snowing. And so getting in the hot tub, you know, the snow's coming down. It's awesome until you get out. Try to run into the cabin. That's not too cool. But a hot tub by, by, by its nature is contained, right? So you get in there and you enjoy it all by yourself or you enjoy it with your spouse or a friend or two. That's it. But a, but a river flows into you and then flows out of us. And Jesus died and rose again, not just to save you and me, but so that his grace of saving us might continue on through us and beyond us. Gospitality. And when Jesus was speaking to hosts and prospective hosts at the end of this passage... He says, when you throw a party, when you have a dinner at your house, when you have a luncheon at your house, don't just invite the people that you enjoy being with, that you're comfortable with, that you incline to invite. Don't just invite your brothers. Don't just invite your relatives. Don't just invite uh, the rich folks. Don't just invite the people that you would be inclined to invite. But you invite the poor, and you invite the lame, and you invite the crippled, and you invite the blind. Now, you might say, I don't know anybody that's blind. I don't know anybody that's crippled. Don't get hung up there. Jesus' point was not that you're to invite disabled people in, but you're to invite the people that you're probably not necessarily inclined to invite to your house. Not necessarily inclined to invite to dinner. And so for us, it might be that the unbelievers um, in our world, it might be refugees that are in our world. It might be the gay couple next door. It might be the, uh, uh, the, might be the uh, individual that's a different ethnicity than you. It might be somebody that's got a different um, material status than you do. On and on and on. And, and where do a lot of these folks live? Next door to us. Now I realize we're in a rural community and some of you don't have a neighbor for a mile and a half or so. I I get that. 
But many of us live places where there are a lot of neighbors. And, and as I was wrestling with this the last couple of weeks, I thought about how awful it was that my wife and I had two sisters moved in next door to us over two years ago. And we had dinner with them for the first time uh, about two months ago and learned their names for the first time two months ago. We're part of that one-third and one-half. Can you identify with that in your community, in your neighborhood? We have all these people potentially around us living right in our neighborhoods that we don't know who they are. We don't know what they think. We don't know what they need. We, don't, we just don't know them. Why is that the case, by the way? Robert Putnam, in his landmark book in 2000, Bowling Alone, blamed television. And his argument was that we have, uh, with television, we have individualized and privatized leisure time so that now when we have leisure time, whereas we might have uh, hobnobbed with neighbors before, it's, we go in, in, indoors, turn the television on, and, and enjoy our own private leisure time with our, just with ourselves and our families. Uh, I tend to agree with other critics who, who trace it far earlier and say the car has radically changed culture in America. That once the automobile was introduced to our culture, we could, we could drive other places, we could drive to other friends, we could drive to other relatives, maybe across town in a way that we couldn't before. We used to have to have, we needed our neighbors to help bring in hay. We needed our neighbors to pull out, help pull out a child that had fallen in a well. We needed a neighbor to vouch for us at the bank. But with the advent of the automobile, all of that began to change. And, of course, Putnam's book was written uh, just at the beginnings of the Internet age and, and far earlier than smartphone development. And so all of those things have, have brought us distant neighborhoods to, uh, close to us. So now our neighborhood is our, is our Facebook family and our Instagram family and, and Snapchat and so forth. And so... Uh, Technological advances have radically changed uh, how we think and live in our communities. Here's the question. Is that a good thing? Is that a God thing? And it must it be the only way things are for us? What does God, if anything, have for us to do with our neighbors these days. I was on, uh, online looking at why uh, people write down why they don't know their neighbors. And here's a, here are some of the um, responses. The number one reason is people say, I'm too busy. It's just my life is too busy. I don't have time to get to know my neighbors and have a relationship with them uh, like I have with some other people. Uh, some say my neighbors are too transient. Last folks that moved into the house next door only stayed here 16 months and they were gone. And to, for me to invest in that relationship, I don't know if it's worthwhile. Some said they don't trust their neighbors. I'm not sure I want my children to be around those kinds of folks. Or maybe they're crackheads or 
Maybe it's a thief. I don't really want to get to know my neighbors and open up my life to that kind of trauma. Some said they don't uh, want to be friends with somebody they might have to call the police on. Uh, Last year, 4th of July, uh, our neighbors were setting off fireworks in their backyard. And um, we went to bed about 10 o'clock, 10.15 that night, something like that. They're still setting off fireworks. An hour later, they're still setting off fireworks. And I don't mean sparklers. I mean the, the big kaboom kind. And uh, I got up about 11.15, looked out the window just in time to see four um, rockets arcing toward our house and toward the neighbor's house. And my sanctification was being whittled down at that moment. And uh, I couldn't believe it. The next morning, I found pieces of the fireworks on my roof and ones that had arced across both our backyards, across my house, and out onto the road in front of my house. And I finally had had enough. I got dressed. I went out and uh, walked across our yard. And I said, hey, guys, you, you got to knock it off. It's, people are trying to sleep. And they were gracious enough to stop. But I thought, and we had been trying to build a relationship with them. We've had a picnic, had them over. Um, we kind of got started, but it seems difficult. But I, th- I thought about that too. You know, it's like, how do you have a relationship with someone that maybe does some things that you don't like that you're, you, you know, you might have some friction about in, in the future. So it's just for some, it's just easier not to have that relationship, not to start that relationship. And again, others say, I don't really need my, I don't need my neighbors. If, you know, if I'm at a medical emergency, I'm not going to call my neighbor. I'm going to call the fire company or I'm going to call an ambulance um, it, I have all kinds of resources at my disposal now simply through my, through my smartphone. Here's the question. What if, what if God sovereignly put Harry and Sheila, Ryan and Casey, and Desiree next to us Because they are our assignment. What if God placed us next to them because he wants us to love them? What if he is waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting to see if we have been so affected by the gospel that our lives of grace overflow downstream into theirs? What if? Perhaps to be the means to their salvation, but perhaps just to obediently love them. If you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 13. Doesn't sound right. 12. 12. Mark chapter 12, verse 29. Remember, Jesus was asked, What's the greatest commandment of all? And this is what he said. The most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally it's important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. Now, one of the things that I have been intrigued with in the last year or two is I've pondered this commandment is Jesus changed the whole rules of grammar 
What I mean by that is when we talk about the superlative, the comparative is the better, the superlative is the best. So when we use the superlative, the finest, the prettiest, the most expensive, the greatest, um, it, we always think of one, right? What's the, who makes the best pizza in town? Well, we might have different opinions, but we all have just one opinion. Who does that? What's the fastest car on the planet? I don't know what it is, a Lamborghini or something, but there's only, there's only one, not two. And yet when Jesus answers the question, what's the most important commandment? He gives two commandments, he cheats. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is equally as important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we all know from Jesus' uh, parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus expanded neighbor beyond proximity. Who was the neighbor to the man who was uh, beat up and left for dead by by the thieves? The man who cared for him the one who took care of his needs. But I I wonder for us in 21st century America if we don't need to recapture the proximity element of neighbor all over again. Because these people are beside us. Listen, if you believe that God is sovereign, you have to believe that they're there next to you on purpose. That they didn't just happen to buy the house next door because it had the right number of bedrooms and bathrooms. That they don't just have the apartment next to you because it happens to fit within their budget. That they're there by the placement of a sovereign God next to you, who hap- someone who happens to know and love Jesus Christ. And maybe you're there to lead them to Christ and maybe you're there just to obediently love them. In Christ. We were all once strangers that Jesus reached out to. Now maybe it's our turn to reach out to others on his behalf. I, uh, several weeks ago, I got an email advertising a, a new book that was coming out. And I misread the email thinking it wasn't going to be published and uh, uh, released until last Saturday. Um, I thought, man, this looks like a good book for me to thumb through in preparation for today's message. And so that was my plan. Uh, turns out the email simply said, Amazon doesn't have it until last Saturday. So last Saturday I ordered it. It came Tuesday afternoon. That's my day off. And um, we got it and opened it up and I laid it there on the table and I went downstairs to do some writing, and a couple hours I came back upstairs, and Betty was reading it. She was up to page 77. And I said, what do you think? And she looks at me out of the top of her glasses and said, oh, honey, our lives need to change. And I'm like, that good or that bad? <laughs> the title of it is, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. The subtitle is Practicing Radically Ordinary Hospitality in Our Post-Christian World. Practicing Ordinary Hospitality in Our Post-Christian World. Some of you know the story of Rosaria Butterfield, uh, the author. Rosaria was a lesbian activist, tenured professor at Syracuse University in the late 90s. Wrote an article in the local newspaper critical of Promise Keepers Movement, Religious Right, And a local pastor reached out to her in a letter. 
and invited her to come to their house for conversation. Rosario wasn't about to do that until some colleagues suggested that maybe this would be good for her research on a book that she was writing critical of the religious right. And so she ended up going to Ken and Floyd Smith's house and over the subsequent years developed a friendship with them. And the day came when Rosario became a follower of Jesus ended up marrying a man who became a Presbyterian pastor. They adopted four children. And this is the story. It's about a quarter admonition and three quarters biography of how they live their lives. It is a riveting read. I started it late Tuesday night. I finished it Friday morning. And the video that I posted this morning on Facebook is um, Rosario reading from this book the story about their neighbor, Hank who turned out to be a meth dealer or meth cooker. And she writes in this book, we are called to make sacrifices that we as Christians are called to make sacrifices that hurt so that others can be served and maybe even saved. We are called to die. Nothing less. We are, we who follow Jesus are called to die, nothing less. That sets us up for next week's sermon. So if you're not comfortable with that, you might want to skip it. We are called to die, nothing less. What, what do we do if we want to be uh, ambassadors of this gospel grace that we have been given. What do we do? Listen, we, we have some phenomenal opportunities if God opens our eyes to our neighbors all over again. Maybe just starting to talk across the backyard fence. Just maybe knocking on doors. One of the things I did this week in light of this is to download the app, um, Android app, next door. How many of you have this? There's a bunch of apps available out there to reestablish neighborliness in your community. Uh, I've found out nobody in my community is doing this, so I'm going to get to be the first one. I can't start it right now. We're going on a trip for a while, but I'm going to do it when I get back. Um, That's that's one thing to kind of reestablish the the neighborhood. Uh, Just opening your home and inviting neighbors in for, for tea, dessert, a meal, whatever. Those of you who have children... I'm going to do a three-minute sermon, mini-sermon. I wonder if we who are Christian parents have, have so bought into the fears of our culture that we're not even developing disciples in our children the way God wants us to be. And what I mean by that is that we're afraid... We're afraid that if we have our kids rub shoulders with unbelievers, they're going to turn into criminals. They're going to be molested. They're going to become drug addicts. You know what I'm saying? That the natural innate fears of the culture are bleeding over into the lives of we who have the author of the universe running our lives. who has 
who has enabled us to stare darkness in the face and overcome it with light. And we're protecting our children against all of these things and inadvertently we are protecting them against becoming sold out disciples ready to die for Jesus. And how powerful our children can be in being purveyors and conveyors of the grace of Jesus Christ in the communities in which we live. End of, end of many sermon. To stock our cupboards with extra food on hand. To create neighborhood margin in our lives so that we can help our neighbors. Um, I, I Get this book. I'm serious. Get this book. I, I read this and thought, how can anyone live like this today? And then I realized I've bought the lie of the culture that says I, I, it's all about me. Gospitality is not all about me. And American Christian brother and sister of mine, I think we need to re-wrestle perhaps with some things that we assumed are God-shaped that really aren't. I'm going to briefly read, uh, and I'll wrap up. I was reading a blog um, the other week by a blogger named Chris Smith, not a believer as far as I can tell, but fascinating. He had an epiphany at 35,000 feet. He was in a plane, and he had had a conversation with a seatmate. took 30 minutes, and he was working on a blog post. When they finished their conversation, it dawned on him, this man now that I never met before and I'll never see again, this man knows more about me than any of my neighbors do, and I know more about him than I know about any of my neighbors. And he went back home and decided he's going he's to change. He's going to make a change. And this is what he writes. He said, over the next several months, every time I saw a neighbor, instead of waving, I was going to go up to my neighbors, introduce myself, and get to know them. So now that several months have gone by, I want to share my results. The neighbors right next to me are Hispanic and amazing cooks. I have enjoyed more than a few beers with them and have been invited over multiple times for delicious meals. I have learned more Spanish words and was even given the inside scoop on which meats to buy at a local Mexican market, which has made me a barbecue hero with my family. Other neighbors I have gotten to know are from Laos and India. Our Laotian neighbors invited our entire family over for a barbecue, and the food was amazing, but the conversation was fascinating. They immigrated to the U.S. because their family had been high-ranking military personnel in Laos trying to fight communism, and they were provided safe haven in the U.S., Our neighbors from India were also involved in government affairs and had invited me over for family celebrations. Turns out their son owns a local liquor store, which also has been a nice perk. One of our neighbors owns a large roofing company and another owns a construction company. All of them have offered to help with my home when I need it. And I thought about the the benefits that he's getting out of having reached out. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. When you have a party, don't just invite the folks that you're inclined to invite. 
that think the way you do, who like the same things that you do, who won't ruffle your feathers in their conversation, who won't make you wish they would go home early. Invite the blind, the poor, the lame, the crippled. Invite the Democrat or the Republican, the gay couple, the other ethnicity couple, the folks that you might not be inclined to because you are there and they are there for a reason. Let's pray. Thanks, Jesus, for the grace of God that's flown in, uh, flowed into our lives through you. What a gift. We're grateful for the people whose lives have enriched and impacted us. And the people that we've been able to impact as well. But don't let us miss our neighbors. Those folks that you moved into our neighborhood. You had them call just the right real estate agent. You had them call just the right property manager. You had them call just, right, the, just the right trailer park owner. So that they could end up next door to us or across the street from us or behind us. So that our lives and the gospel impact might flow into them as well. In Jesus' name, amen.